When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Well, it's a symptom of a type of disturbance in the chemical electrical activity of the brain. In the case of your daughter in the temporal lobe, it's up here in the lateral part of the brain. Mm-hmm. It's rare, but it does cause bizarre hallucinations. And usually just before a convulsion. A totally reasonable explanation for speaking in tongues, projectile vomiting, and levitating four feet in the air. That's from the number one film at the box office in 1973, William Friedkin's The Exorcist. This week, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of that great movie year with our top five of 73. Altman, Malick, Scorsese, so many more. Pretty good year. Is Captain Howdy going to join us for this top five? Don't scare me. Ahead on film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. You know, it's not quite March, Josh, but here on Film Spotting, it's time for some madness. <laughs> for some people, this is a year round endeavor. So, <laughs> good point. Good point. The ninth annual edition of Film Spotting Madness, our bracket style elimination tourney, kicks off this week. It's the best of the 60s to vote or get more info. Filmspotting.net or filmspottingmadness.com. Yes. Sam, producer Sam and I have been hard at work, especially over the past month or two, getting that bracket in tip-top shape. By the end of the tournament, we'll crown the single greatest film of the 60s. And we're easing into things this week, Josh, with the play-in round. We've got 16 of them to determine which films will eke their way into the bracket. They'll be there in the dance for round one, probably to get crushed by some higher seed. Yeah, that tends to happen with these play-ins, but it gives us all a whole bunch of movies to give some consideration to as well before we get to the official bracket. Yeah, we've got play-ins for musicals, epics, Disney films, films starring Paul Newman, Audrey Hepburn, and Catherine Deneuve. We've got films directed by Bergman, Tarkovsky, and Godard. Lots of good stuff. A bit later in the show, we'll talk through the play-ins that we thought were the easiest and some that were a bit tougher. Now, how perverse did you guys get with this are are you matching up like disney against tarkovsky is that what we're looking at here <laughs> no no not in the play-ins disney against disney tarkovsky against tarkovsky okay on, gotcha Josh. gotcha thematic pairings before thematic we get to the genre chaos. director actor whatever it might be that sounds right. good the chaos will really ensue with round one 
We're going to focus on the 70s now. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the movie year 1973. A great excuse for us to share our top five films of that year. You have been working on this for at least a month, Josh, doing an impressive amount of homework. Do you want to mention some titles that didn't make the cut now, or are you going to save them for honorable mentions? Well, maybe there's one I'll mention, and it's because it didn't make an honorable mention for me. I did like it, and I think – I'm not sure if you've seen it, but watching it, as soon as it was over, I wanted to know because it seemed so up your alley. Have you seen Orson Welles' F for Fake? Oh, yes. Okay. Maybe yes, maybe we shouldn't go on then because I actually let's not go on because I want to see if it makes your list. I came out of this it is a documentary but sort of a faux documentary thinking mm-hmm. this this is such an Adam film. So let's set that aside then. I'll just note not in my top 10 of the year mm-hmm. though I did I was glad that I did finally catch up with it for homework for this list. Yeah, me too. This 1973 top five was worth it just to know that you have seen F for Fake. We mentioned at the top that The Exorcist was the top grossing film at the box office in 73. That's not quite right. It was the top grossing film that was released in 73. Josh, I know you love all these details. Yeah, give them to me. Didn't open in theaters until December 73. So you could say its box office and cultural dominance took place over the first half of 74. Same goes for The Sting, which opened in December 73. One Best Picture in April 74 didn't go to number one at the box office until its 17th week of release in late April. That begs the question, what was the Top Gun Maverick of 73? And it might have been the Poseidon Adventure that came out in December 72. And it was still number one at the box office in May 73. Yeah, those days when a film could hang on at the box mm-hmm. office like that, a film that wasn't, you know, Avatar or something. I guess maybe right. Poseidon Adventure is a little bit Avatar, though, now that I think about it. It might be a lot Avatar, depending on who you ask. <laughs> I know where you'd place it. Yes, the Oscars in 1973 awarded in 74. The Best Picture nominations went to The Exorcist, George Lucas's American Graffiti, Bergman's Cries and Whispers, and a movie... I'm guessing you didn't catch up with Josh, and I've never seen A Touch of Class with Glenda Jackson and George Siegel, the greatest love story of our time, according to the film's trailer. Didn't make it to that one, I'm sorry. The winner, though, was The Sting. Best Actor went to Jack Lemmon for Save the Tiger. Glenda Jackson did win Best Actress for A Touch of Class, and how about Best Supporting Actress going to 10-year-old when she won the award, Tatum O'Neill for Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon. Still the youngest ever, right? I believe so. You're the piano expert. How old was Paquin? Yeah, I don't think she was younger than that. So I think it's still O'Neill's record. Let's get then to our top five films of 1973. It's possible one or two of them have already been mentioned. What's your number five? So a lot of good context there. And here's some more when you look at 1973. For me, the year marked the arrival of three filmmakers who would go on to become major forces in American cinema over the next several decades. I mean, there are some notable names on this list, but I think there are three for sure who are going to have long-lasting influence. They're each going to have influence in very different ways. They'll go on to make very different films. And I'm including Martin Scorsese, Terrence Malick. I think we're going to get to both of those two in a little bit. But right here at number five, I've got George Lucas. And Lucas, you know, had already made the quite good THX 1138 in 1971. That 
was more of a suggestion of the Star Wars galaxy to come. But in 1973, he had a huge success with my number five pick, American Graffiti. This was his look back about a decade earlier, early 60s, I think it's set, and it centers on a bunch of high school teens cruising the California Strip the summer after graduation. Hey, man, I'm sorry if I scared you. You're going to have to do one hell of a lot more than that to scare me. Yeah, but looking all over for you, man. Didn't nobody tell you I was looking for you? Hey, I can't keep track of all you punks running around here backwards. Hey, you're supposed to be the fast thing in the valley, man, but that can't be your car. It must be your mama's car. I'm sort of embarrassed to be this close to you. This one, I saw come up quite a bit on social media when we did ask listeners for their favorite. I asked particularly, you have to pick one. What is your favorite film of 1973? A couple of folks did go with American Graffiti, including Cordell Cabe on Twitter, at Cordell Cabe 12. This is what Cordell wrote about the film. Style, humor. Soundtrack, cinematography, inventiveness, influential, writing, cast, shall I go on? I'm pretty much in agreement there on all those counts. Let me just highlight a few. The soundtrack, Frankie Lyman's Why Do Fools Fall in Love, The Platters, The Great Pretender, The Monotones, The Book of Love, Del Shannon's Runaway, Buddy Holly's Maybe Baby. Those are probably mm. my favorites, but it's just a few of the songs that you get here. Cinematography. Yonda Alquin and Ron Eveslage are credited as the cinematographers here. You know, rewatching clips for this, Adam, American Graffiti is just luminous. The headlights, the streetlights, those gleaming cars. It's incredible how glowing this movie is, which is fitting for what is, you know, not entirely a nostalgia piece, but that's definitely an element, right? Looking back at an earlier time with fondness. Talk about the writing. Lucas, Gloria Katz, and Willard Hike were nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay. Movie also nominated, as we said, for Best Picture and Best Director, Best Editing, and then a Best Supporting Actress nod for Candy Clark. Influential, I mean, Dazed and Confused for us and our listeners are probably the first title that comes to mind, but that's just one of the end of high school movies that American Graffiti did influence. And then we do finally get to the cast. Paul Lamott, Cindy Williams, Ron Howard, a fresh-faced Harrison Ford in a cowboy hat and a twang, and then as Kurt, one of the more major characters we meet who's chasing romance in the form of a mythical blonde in a white Ford Thunderbird, Richard Dreyfus. What? Steven, cut over to G Street. I just saw a vision. I saw a goddess. Come on, you gotta catch up to her. Come on, Kurt. We can't be spending half the night chasing girls down for you. Maury, I'm telling you, this was the most perfect, dazzling creature I've ever seen. She's gone. Get it. She spoke to me. She spoke to me right through the window. I think she said, I love you. That means nothing to you people. You have no romance, no soul. She, someone wants me. Someone roaming the streets wants me. Will you turn the corner? Suzanne Summers of Three's Company, by the way, is the mystery blonde. There are just so many familiar faces in this. But as far as Dreyfus goes, you can see what he had so early on. Just a way to invest the material with a few degrees more passion and importance than somebody else probably would. So it has been a long time since I've seen American Graffiti in full. And maybe a revisit would have it even higher on this list. But for now, I've got it at number five. Yeah, you've got it in your top five, despite having not seen it in a while. I haven't seen it in a while either, and have it 
actually contending for my number 10 spot. That's how good 1973 is. So an honorable mention for me, but not quite there competing for the top five. All those elements you mentioned, the listener mentioned, of course, are there. But I think about the ending, too. I think about how bittersweet American Graffiti is. Just knowing that it's made or it comes out in 73, it's looking back 10 years, thinking about where the country is in 73. And even without that epilogue, we know that life is never going to be the same and probably never going to be quite as good as it is for these characters who are all just on the cusp of beginning those lives as we meet them in American Graffiti. Yeah, the epilogue really puts it into a larger context, but you're right. Even the the car crash, you know, from that mm-hmm. race that comes near the end there is a way to undercut the nostalgia just a little bit. That's crucial. I was lamenting, and I was lamenting it far too late, obviously. I wish I had suggested this to you and to Sam before we went ahead with this top five. And now that I consider how much homework you did and probably some of the titles you're going to get to squeeze in and makes it all worth it. But I couldn't help but feel like as much as I love my list because I love these films and 73 is such an incredible year. I kind of wish we had done instead, maybe top five underrated movies of 1973 or some variation on it. So I could talk about some movies, Josh, that maybe aren't so obvious or maybe haven't been covered in so much detail on this show in the past, because that's, the case with me. Now, this one I have at number five doesn't quite fit that bill, but it has definitely come up before. I do want to take just a little detour before we get there because it is a foreign language film. And we talked about this over Slack. I know you love more talk about qualifications. Oh, are we going to have the release date debate? Well, I do think we at least need to acknowledge it as briefly as we can. There are going to be people listening who are going to hear some of our choices or hear the absence of certain choices and say, why didn't you consider that film? That's a 1973 film. So, I mean, we have to at least address it, don't we? Go for it. Well, it makes it tough, right, with foreign language films, because depending on where you search or the movie database, TMDB, that powers a lot of these sites, it may have a certain year attached to the titles. And in the past, or at least when we look at the movies we review on this show, typically, we're talking about movies based on when they were released in the U.S. theatrically. That's when we see them as U.S.-based critics. So that's kind of what drives our show. It's problematic or it becomes a challenge when you look back in the past and you see some of these titles and you say, well, what year does it does it fit into? So a movie like Spirit of the Beehive, very good film. 1973 in most places. Came out in Spain in 1973 and some other countries, including it played at the Chicago Film Festival. I think its U.S. premiere was at the Chicago Film Festival, but then it didn't actually come out theatrically in the United States until 1976. Now there, I think it'd be kind of absurd to call that a 1976 movie over a 1973 movie. But then you've got something like Fellini and Armor Cord, which is a film I know that you watched in preparation for this top five. IMDb has it as 73 But it wins an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film for 1974 at the 1975 Oscars. Someone's going to have to write in and tell me why the Oscars used to do this. This was new to me until I started doing this research here. It was also nominated for Best Director and Original Screenplay for 1975 at the 76 Oscars. They used to split those categories up, it seems, and even award the prizes at different times. And if you look back, Critics who were putting Armor Cord on their top 10 list, they were doing it 
474, not 73. So for me, Armor Chords, a 74 film, not a 1973 film. If we were doing this show back in 1974, that's when we would have talked about Armor Chord and considered it for our top 10 films of the year. So going by that logic, that's why I'm excluding a movie like Armor Chord. And then you have something like Scenes from a Marriage, the Bergman film that pops up as 1973 in a lot of places. Criterion lists it that way. But the Criterion edition includes both the TV version and the theatrical version. And on IMDb, it's clearly marked TV in 73, theatrical in 74. And it was nominated and I think won a Golden Globe in 75. So that one's clearer. Scenes from a Marriage is 74, and we'll go ahead and keep it there. That's how I approach it anyway. Yeah, and, and I'll just be real quick because I do think of it a little bit differently that maybe isn't as logical, but I basically break it up from the times, the years that I've been actively professionally reviewing films when, as you said, which is correct, on the show too, we consider the foreign films, foreign language films release date to be when it is released in the United States. That's when we consider them for our top 10 list. So that's the way I do it for then. When I am going back historically for lists mm -hmm. like these, or even, for instance, on my website, when I'm deciding what year to label a film as its release date, um, a non-English language or non-American film, I'll at that point go to its country of origin. And that's just for, you know, historical authenticity the way I see it a little bit more and honestly it just makes things I know there's going to be there's like that time where the two mm -hmm. time frames meet where it doesn't make any sense somewhere in I don't know 1994 or whatever when I first started reading reviews I'll kind of let that be an MCU multiverse problem I don't have to solve but when I'm going historical like this for me it just comes down to like I'm record spoiler yeah I did watch it for this list really like it it's in my top 10 didn't cut into my top five however I just pull up Google right now type I'm record 1973 is all over my screen. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, from all the places we talk about, again, Rotten Tomatoes, Letterboxd, Movie, right. you know, all these places we go to. So we have a little bit different of a viewpoint. The main thing, mm -hmm. which I think we came to on Slack is like, it's not going to be that often where it does cause a legit problem. And when it does, we'll go through this whole shebang again <laughs> and hash yeah, it out. Then. I mean, the important not, thing is we're getting a chance to talk about, you know, really agreed. great movies from these particular eras that we're looking back on. Agreed. And I understand your approach, but the one challenge I will throw out to that is what happens when we look into the future, Josh, and we're still here in 15 or 20 years and we're looking back on the year 2023. Is Kelly Reichert showing up, for example, let's say we love that film 2022 in every database. But if it's a film we love, it's going to be one of our favorite films of 2023. So that's, you're going to say that's for the multiverse to figure out, Adam. You're, I'll you're worry about that because, then. yeah, you had it on your website in 2023. It's a 2023 film. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. I'm trying to account for all those scenarios, even in the future. Let's get into our picks. My pick here at number five. It is a foreign film. Fortunately, one that didn't require so much hand wringing about where it fits, because from everything I can tell, Came out in 1973, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, out of the festival, actually, or out of competition, and then came out in the U.S. later in 73, ended up winning an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film in 74. It is Francois Truffaut's Day for Night, one of the all-time great 
movies about making movies and just might be the best movie about making movies where we see Truffaut himself playing a filmmaker who is on set trying to get this kind of cheesy melodrama made that stars a screen actress who is maybe getting a little long in the tooth. And then you've got this young stud, I suppose, male actor Alphonse, who's played by longtime Truffaut collaborator Jean-Pierre Leo. Jacqueline Bissett appears as this young British actress. And the scene from this is I was Googling to refresh my memory on. It's been a while since I've seen it today. The scene that pops up everywhere. And there's a reason why it's so good. I've talked about it before here on the show when we did our top five movies about movies. It's the what is a film director scene. It's what your guy, Wes Anderson, riffed on in his American Express ad. You remember that from oh, like yeah. 2006 or something? It's a blatant homage to Truffaut. And this film, and again, this scene in particular, down to the first two names in that commercial, I rewatched it today. It's really good. The first two names referenced in that commercial are Francois and Jean-Pierre. You'll never make it, Francois. Neither will you. Unless my calculations are incorrect, the data processor, where'd you get that pen? This? Jean-Pierre gave it to me. It's just a ballpoint pen. Why is it blinking? I don't know. Boom! In this scene, Truffaut's the director, his production manager comes up to him and is asking him to make some choices about cars and colors and different things. And we hear Truffaut's character in voiceover explain what is a film director. Qu'est-ce qu'un metteur en scène Un metteur en scène, c'est quelqu'un qui l'on pose sans arrêt des questions, des questions à propos de tout. Someone who gets asked questions about everything. Sometimes he knows the answers. Whenever I think about this scene or talk about this scene, I've always referenced it in those terms about the director making choices on a deeper level, I think, as exasperating as making all these choices seem to be for this character. Truffaut suggests that part of the joy of making movies is that these decisions both matter and are completely insignificant, right? They only matter within this hermetic world of making this film. And you can ascribe all the importance to them that you want. But really, at the end of the day, whether or not you go with the red car or the white car, isn't like you're deciding who you should marry or should you have kids or not or what job you should take. What I forgot about until I rewatched it today is how funny the scene is. Wes isn't even really parodying the scene. He's just kind of capturing the actual tone of it. When he's asked by his production manager, red car or white car, he asks if the white car can be painted blue because he thinks it's very white. And that's that's funny enough, right? But then he sees a blue car parked near the white one. And he says to the production manager, can we use this blue car instead? And the guy says, no, that's your assistant's car. And Truffaut, his character without missing a beat, goes, maybe he won't mind. <laughs> He's totally serious. And the production manager, totally serious back, says, I'll ask him. He says, great, go do that. No matter how serious we take it, no matter how serious the artists themselves take it, it is all pretend. And as the director, you can ask for things and will things into being that in the real world, you simply can't. And I mentioned, I haven't seen this movie in a while, but my recollection of it is that it's atypical for movies about movies in this way, right? It is absurd, but it's also completely earnest. I don't recall a, an ounce of cynicism on day for night. 
Yeah, and that's the playfulness, you know, that Truffaut could bring to something like this, which keeps it from being pretentious or too navel gazing or too mm-hmm. meta. And even though it's something that's shown, I think I first saw it in my first film studies class I took in college. You know, it has to be a standard for a curriculum like that. It isn't one that is going to, it's a very approachable, accessible way to get at some of these ideas about how movies are made, the decisions you have to make in doing that yeah. and what it all means and what it doesn't mean at the end of the day right. as well. So, But, but embracing the process. Yeah. First and foremost. Yeah, To your exactly. point about it being good material for a film class. For sure. All right. Let's stick with uh, international features here for my number four pick. This is uh, a homework pick that I did. Watched it for the first time for this list. And it's Lady Snowblood. I've got this one at number four, but on Twitter, James Hawes at four J-Man said it was his favorite movie, absolute favorite from 73, wrote this fantastic film that was ahead of its time, quietly influential on both the action and revenge thriller genres. So now in terms of that influence, you know, in style and story, Lady Snowblood most obviously influenced Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill films. If you've seen those and haven't seen Lady Snowblood, this plot synopsis is going to sound familiar. It's it's set in late 1800s Japan and follows Yuki, played by Maiko Kaji, who's trained as a child to be a sword-wielding assassin and seek vengeance on the quartet of criminals who, years before Yuki was born, raped her mother and murdered her mother's husband and young son. Color is so crucial here. The director, Toshia Fujita, often uses the snow that's in the first section of this film as a blank canvas and just splashes. You know, there's the purple of a spinning umbrella in one sequence. Most often, though, it's the crimson, a crimson geyser burning with blood from a wound. I mean, this thing is so bloody, but it's that bright, super fake type of blood that's being employed. Now, despite all the style, and I'm telling you, there's not an uninteresting angle or camera movement in this thing. There is also an intense moral curiosity to the movie that I think gives it an extra heft. The wrinkle here is that Yuki is both driven and possessed by revenge. We see early on after her mother gives birth to Yuki at the start of the film and just before dying from complications during the delivery, her mother pronounces her an Asura demon, which we learn is a wrathful supernatural being. So Yuki carries her calling like a curse in this film. And that is something that you can feel in Maiko Kaji's Haunted Stare. So yeah, I did do a lot of homework for this list. I think this is the one no, actually two did pay off for slots in the top five, but Lady Snowblood was one of them here at number four. Lady Snowblood is a movie I've never even heard of, Josh. And that includes, obviously, almost 18 years of doing this show. Not on the radar at all. Never been mentioned on this show, though as I look now in the film spotting Gmail, I see that back in 2020 when we were getting ready for Film Spotting Madness 2021, or we were talking about 70 Cinema. A listener named Quinn Glassnap had a big spreadsheet, you know how I love spreadsheets, of movie titles in different categories. Lady Snowblood was on it. And it turns out that our friends, long live Film Spotting SVU, Matt and Allison, talked about Lady Snowblood back on SVU 105. Nice. So a Film Spotting connection, but otherwise a film that was completely new to me as I saw it popping up 
in relationship to this top five? I bet you would recognize, because I was in a similar place, you know, the title, I kind of had a vague sense of what it might have been about. It was all in context of Kill Bill. So I bet if you saw a screenshot of, you know, one of the images of Yuki, your mind would probably go back to comparisons being made to it when Kill Bill was released because mm-hmm. the homage, let's kindly say, is is so strong in terms of what Tarantino was doing there. So we'll note here ahead of my next pick that I'm going a little bit out of order. I think we're getting your five, four, and three here in this first part of our top five films of 73. I'm departing from that a little bit because it turns out we do have two films from 73 in common, and those two films are our respective number ones. So we're going to save those. I'm going to go a little bit out of order. My number three film of 73 is Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Coincidentally, another film that's not so much about making movies, but it's definitely a movie about movies, or maybe we could specify a movie about Hollywood and all that cynicism that I said was absent in Truffaut's film. Altman is devilishly happy to deliver here. I think about the score, which is just hooray for Hollywood used in various forms throughout, including at the end, very ironically, but this is a Philip Marlowe story. And you think about Marlowe, I know there's a new version out with Liam Neeson. I don't know how many people actually saw it. You watch it and you just say, didn't Marlowe die with Elliot Gold in The Long Goodbye? We can't, we really can't top it. We certainly can't top that revisionist or deconstructed or transformed take on Philip Marlowe. Why even bother trying to revive him? But Bogey just embodied this masculine myth, this myth of the hard-boiled private detective in this sinister world. Everybody's out for themselves and no dame or criminal is going to get one over on Philip Marlowe. And Altman comes along and says, you know, you should play Marlowe, Elliot Gold. Who the hell are you? Well, I'm this here private investigator who was sent here this afternoon to uh, find you, but the good doctor here dummied up. You were sent here to find me? Why? Well, I'm supposed to bring you home if that's where you want to go. This guy who's known for Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice and for working with Altman on MASH. But other than the fact that he's pretty tall, taller than Bogey, certainly, nothing about him really suggests man's man, tough guy. And we see right from the beginning of the film, he can't even wrangle his cat. He can't even feed his cat. Come on. Kid, you're hungry, right? Hey, why don't you think of all the tigers in India they're killing because they don't get enough to eat? Don't believe that one, huh? Okay, okay, okay. I saw a piece on the New Beverly website, an interview with Gold that Kim Morgan did, and he was thinking back to when he was cast. Altman said something to him, I think maybe even gave him the script or something, and he said, I've always wanted to play this guy. And Altman said to me, you are this guy. And that was it. And I really wish that Kim, who does a great interview, I wish she had maybe delved into that just a little bit more because maybe I'm crazy in all those things I just said, but I can't imagine, I can't imagine Elliot Gold in a winking sort of way being like, of course, I've always wanted to play Philip Marlowe. Why wouldn't I want to do my version of Philip Marlowe, even if it's kind of a joke or it's a self-referential or self-reflexive version of Marlowe? Altman feeling like, yeah, you're born to play Marlowe, I don't know, strikes me as something I'd love to hear more about. What he can do in the film, 
quite well and with real macho fervor is Strike a Match, which he does a lot in that film. And there's actually an entire YouTube compilation of just the match strikes. If you watch it, if you look for it, it might be the best movie you watch all week. This one for me, though, Josh, was a film I watched in film school, a film that was transformative, understanding genre, understanding how genre could be transformed. And the legacy of it is long. These self-reflexive neo-noirs. It just so happens that I was in the car for a long period of time today, and I was listening to Natasha Leone's interview with Dak Shepard on Armchair Expert. And she mentions that Russian Doll, which I love that series on Netflix, the series that she created, she's got her cat, Oatmeal the Cat, which is just taken straight from the cat and the relationship in The Long Goodbye. And when we reviewed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I certainly touched on the connection to The Long Goodbye with Brad Pitt in his trailer with his dog. Everything about that reminded me of the opening of Altman's film. And Elliot Gould is brilliant. I even wonder, I Googled this kind of hoping that I would read somewhere that Landis, I think it was John Landis, right, who did Beverly Hills Cop or Eddie Murphy somewhere along the way, or some other person had made this stupid comment I'm about to make and found a relationship between The Long Goodbye and Beverly Hills Cop. Think about the playful banter that Gold's Marlowe has with that dim-witted guy who's tailing him. Hey, you know, you know those girls that live next door to you? You know what I think? I think they're a couple of lesbians. That's what I think. Oh, yeah, what makes you say that? Well, look at them up there doing all those contortions together and with no clothes on. Oh, they're just doing yoga. What? Yoga. I don't know what it is, but it's yoga. Yeah, what do they do for a living? They dip candles. What? Yeah, they got a cute little shop over on Hollywood Boulevard. They dip them and sell them. I can remember when people just had jobs. Yeah. Listen, Harry, in case you lose me in traffic, this is the address where I'm going. You Thank look you. great. Harry, I would straighten your tire a little bit. Yeah. Harry, I'm proud to have you following me. Oh, thank you. It feels straight out of Eddie Murphy. It feels like all of Axel Foley's interactions with Taggart and Rosewood in Beverly Hills Cop. I don't know. Maybe it was an influence. Maybe it wasn't. Or maybe just Eddie Murphy and Elliot Gold are both comedic geniuses. And you, But you also need, as funny as he is, you need, and this speaks to maybe why he was right for the part or envisioned for the part, envisioned himself for the part. You need the sincerity he brings Mm -hmm. as well to this for it to work, for it to be something more than a spoof, which it absolutely is. It's more of a diffusing of that genre is what Altman is up to. Mm -hmm. And yet that doesn't mean he drains the life or the excitement out of it. It's just kind of this oblique angle on it because – yeah, The Long Goodbye is thoroughly entertaining as well. I think uh, I've got it in my top 10 for the year. just didn't crack my top five. And that Marlowe you mentioned with um, starring Liam Neeson, I don't know. It, maybe I missed it. Did you say, I just realized this the other day, Neil Jordan is directing that of The Crying Game? I didn't know that. I mean, I, I don't know. I've lost track of Neil Jordan in general, so that was a surprise to see. Haven't seen this Marlowe yet. Can't speak to how good it might be. But yeah, The Long Goodbye is definitely a good one. All right. So my number three here is a film with this pick, Adam. I'm not going to spend too much time on. Instead, I'm going to use it to tease our African cinema marathon, which we plan to get to later in the year. I know our lineup, which is pretty much set, so I knew that one of the titles is a 1973 film from Senegal, Tukibuki, also known as Journey of the Hyena. 
I am doubly excited now for that marathon because this was pretty incredible. It's a wild and clever comedy, far less serious than I expected, even though it does have some major ideas and provocations at play as well. The basic story is it follows these two main characters, Anta, played by Mareme Niang, a young woman and university student, and Mori, played by Magaye Niang, who is her prankish and roustabout lover. And the movie follows this pair as they ride around on Mori's motorcycle, trying to scram and scrounge enough money in post-colonial Senegal to pay for a trip to Paris, where they hope to find a better future. So this is from Senegalese writer-director Jibril Jap Mambeti, and much of it plays almost like a live-action Looney Tunes cartoon. Very colorful, extremely witty, and another touch point that comes to mind in the context of this list actually is it's something of the Senegalese American graffiti in that it concentrates on these young adults navigating their way into full adulthood and largely doing it on a set of wheels. Of course, you know, the odds are stacked against this couple in ways that the middle class California kids in American graffiti, they don't have to worry about. But I think that sociopolitical undercurrent is also it gives Tukibuki so much of its bite. So that's enough for now. Eager to dig into it more with you when we do get to that African cinema marathon down the road here. Yeah. And if someone listening isn't familiar with this film, it wasn't a title, I'll admit, that was on my radar at all until we started thinking about what this African cinema marathon would look like, which we do plan to do later this year. We started talking about it in late 2022, I think. And I knew it had a shot at your list. And I really did just want to keep it fresh for the marathon. I'm going to come to it then. And hopefully I'll have a similar positive reaction to you, Josh. Again, I'm going a little bit out of order here. We've heard my number five, my number three. And now we're hearing what is my number two film of 1973. And Josh, I I don't know what to do with this information I discovered. I started taking notes and I was thinking about how much I was kind of dreading talking about this film again because I know your stance on it. And it's just no fun to talk about this movie with you. And I look something up on Letterboxd and wait, what do I see? I see that Josh Larson has logged The Exorcist back in 2013. Starting to come did- around. When we did a Sacred Cow review of it and you deemed it unworthy of being a Sacred Cow, you called it a false idol on the show, two and a half stars. And then I see, I think 2019, you watched it again. And this time, same dismissive reaction to the film, two and a half stars. But lo and behold, you watched this movie a little under a year ago, April 2022. And what do I spy? I spy that extra half star. I was going to say, this is a lot of buildup for a half star. I see the like. (laughs) I see the like. That heart has been checked. Pazuzu possessed your body (laughs) and made you like the exorcist. And I am so here for it, Josh. Yeah, maybe, you know, give me another 20 years and... (laughs) I'll have this thing as highly rated as you do. No, I'm glad to come around, you know, mostly on it. I think I'm always going to have that gap in this movie for me between, um, well, you, you go, you go. This is your, this is your pick. Again, there's no point. We just, we just are so vastly in disagreement about the fundamental thing you dislike about the film that even as you're coming around, it's 
kind of not fun to debate, like I said, or discuss, because there's really not going to be any wiggle room. I'm just never going to convince you that the experience you're having is, quote unquote, the wrong one and vice versa. Your feeling about the film. And we hashed it out back when I was surprised the first time back in 2013 when I found out that there was somebody I knew who didn't revere The Exorcist. I've actually never met anybody who didn't feel about it kind of similarly to me. Yeah, what can I say? Or, you know, it's a masterpiece. But your take on it, I know, is that it's a lot of cheap shock tactics. And Well, let me nuance that. I, let me nuance okay. that. I was going to give you a, a chance to say what you liked about it, not, not mm-hmm. filter what I dislike about it. I well, just think there's still words, I think there's still a gap between the movie Friedkin is making and what he's interested in and what the material and the story and I haven't read Blatty's book so I can't speak particularly mm-hmm. to that but just there's there there are two movies at work here I still see somewhat in conflict that initially I couldn't get past it all and see some of the other stuff going on, especially the craft and those sorts of things. So I have started to come around on that, but yeah, I'm afraid I still think there's a movie that's interested in a lot of these particularly theological ideas and a movie that is, you know, yeah, that's fine. We'll put those in, but really let's get to some other stuff. That's, Hmm. that's just how I read it. That's kind of the basis. So it's not just that it's shocking and gory. I mean, there's a lot of shocking and gory movies I like. Yeah, of course. But there are a lot of shocking and gory movies that I feel don't have as much on their mind as this film. But I know you just expressed that's not how you see this movie. I don't know if I even see its concerns as what I would describe as theological, but that's a discussion maybe for another time. The fundamental difference is that I don't see that split that you see in these two I guess, approaches to the story and the material. And I think that to see a lot of what it gives you as going for shock is to overlook not only the craft of the filmmaking, but to look past the patience that Friedkin has in building to those disturbing scenes. I mean, it takes a good hour into this film before we really get anything that truly unnerves us anyway, or maybe grosses us out, if you will. But the film is so focused on, for me, character building, grounding everything, and this overwhelming feeling of guilt that both Chris McNeil and Father Karras have. And when I think about The Exorcist, I I don't think about vomiting pea soup or the vulgar things that Mercedes McCambridge says or what Linda Blair does with that cross. I think about I think about a lot of shots, you know, of course, Marin's arrival. But beyond that, the way Pazuzu is superimposed into different parts of the film. And I think about the quiet moments. I think about the desperation of the priests when they have that conversation where they kind of take a time out from battling this demon and the conversations that that Chris and Father Karras have before Father Marin even shows up. What I saw in Letterboxd, what I was looking for was a quote from Jim Cummings, the filmmaker who we've talked about a little bit on the show, who, like me, gives this movie five stars. And he says, the first 10 minutes seemingly have nothing to do with the rest of the film until it has everything to do with it. It's a film about a mother struggling with her daughter's mental illness, and it's displayed that way. It connects to audiences on a human level and then becomes a horror film, one of the best horror films, in my opinion. And that's that's where I come out on the film. I think it really is interested in that human element, and it takes on aspects of a horror film still the horror film that scares me the most. But to talk about 
any horror film or any film in terms of, I guess, kind of cheapness or trying to shock, I, I feel like that is is a reflection of a filmmaker who's maybe going for a certain shtick. And I don't think that really scares anybody. I don't think that type of film has ever actually terrified or unnerved anyone. And those types of films certainly don't linger in the cultural consciousness like this movie has or like it has in my consciousness. It's just one of those films that is is always going to be there. I found a tweet actually on the film spotting account from 2013 where I said, how much does The Exorcist scare me? Last night I had to put down Friedkin's book where he's just talking about making it. And that was true. That really was true in 2013. I've come so far though, Josh, that today I was able to actually watch scenes from The Exorcist, look at still images from The Exorcist and not feel the need to run downstairs and have my wife tell me everything's okay. I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now. If you are there, you too are hypnotized. I must answer all my questions. Come forward and answer me now. Did you see any shots of Reagan's eyes? That that's what stood out to me in the last rewatch. And for I know sure. eyes are a problem for you, but that they are that yellow one, eyes. Yeah. So speaking of the craft, I yeah, it's one of the things I noticed is Friedkin, you know, matching cut images or taking the same shot of Reagan's mm-hmm. terrified eyes at different points in the film when there are different things scaring her. And so undeniably there there is a lot of craft going on here. Let's take a break from 1973. We will get to our final two picks later in the show. Here's some agreement. We both adore the two films we're going to mention. All of our picks and more top fives can be found at filmspotting.net slash lists. We do want to give some quick thanks to everybody who gave us a rating or a review over the last week. These, along with your word-of-mouth recommendations, are the best way to introduce the show to new listeners. So thanks in particular to the following who left reviews over the past week on Apple Podcasts. Wintermute, Dairy underscore Queen, Jerther in Mexico, and Janket. Thank you one and all. Share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All the ladies in the room, supporting and leading, all here I presume. Hong Chao, Dolly D, Carrie and Carrie with the C. Dame Emma, I'm so fond, and a girl, you were great and blonde. Danielle D, you broke my heart. Michelle, I've loved you from the start. Oscar winner Ariana DeBose at the BAFTAs earlier this week with her impromptu musical ode to some of 2022's most celebrated women in film. Thank you, Ariana, for that lovely transition into our tease for next week's show. It is our Oscars special. Our picks for who will win, we have no clue. Who should win and who should have been nominated, we feel a lot more confident about those two, Josh. Indeed. And I feel confident Michael Phillips will have all the answers. He's going to be joining us. It's been a bit, I think, since our top 10 roundtable, right? Michael wasn't with us in... Brooklyn for our rap party. So it'll be good to have him back on the show. Always great to have Michael on. As we've discussed, you did a ton of homework for this week's best of 73. Does that mean you haven't gotten to some of your lingering Oscars homework, Josh? Yeah, I, 
I won't be as respectable next week, I'm afraid. Although I do still plan, I know I'm going to see Causeway because you liked it. And yeah, so good. Always appreciate Jennifer Lawrence and yeah, Brian Tyree Henry, who is nominated as a favorite as well. So I know I'm going to see that one and we'll see. I think I have maybe one or two other acting nominees whose mm-hmm. film I haven't seen. We'll see what else I can fit in. Yeah, I definitely have a couple I plan to get to ahead of next week's show. If you have Oscar picks, send a note to feedback at filmspotting.net or find us on social media. I'm at filmspotting. Josh is at Larson on film. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they have a new pairing. They're looking at the criminally underrated by Adam Magic, Mike's hmm. last dance. Adam Debbie's with you. She wasn't a fan either. I, I hate to okay. admit that, but you've you've got yeah. someone who agrees with you there. And they're pairing that with Vincent Minnelli's best picture winning, An American in Paris. Yeah, this pairing is more inspired than Soderbergh's film, unfortunately. Wow. He's not going to come back and talk to you again after all this hate. <laughs> he might not. He might not. <laughs> I've, I've listened to this uh, this first part of this pairing from the next picture show today because an American Paris is one that bedevils me. I want to like it so much and I have significant reservations. And it's been a good conversation so far. They actually have a guest. Scott Tobias isn't on this episode, but D.D. Crimmins, Chicago critic, has joined the rest of the crew, Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. And it's been a good discussion. I'm about halfway through it. If you want to listen, you can find Next Picture Show episodes wherever you get your podcasts. They post new ones each Tuesday. You can also get more information at nextpictureshow.net. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is madness. But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! Yes, it is that time. I usually like to spring Film Spotting Madness on you out of the blue, Josh. I know that's the way you prefer it as well, but you've been privy to a few conversations lately where madness has come up. Some titles have been discussed. Are you okay with that? I feel a little bit bad, actually. Like, I just shared the play-ins. I shared the bracket, actually, an early look at the bracket with the Film Spotting Advisory Board members. You hadn't even seen it yet, but I kind of felt like that's the way you wanted it. Yeah, I, I like to come in fresh, go by instinct. And as I said at that meeting with our advisory board members, one of the quarterly ones we do with those folks, that's kind of how I like to have my madness talk self-contained within, you know, hanging out in an evening, talking it out. Mm-hmm. Maybe it sounds like the great sort of thing I'd like to talk at at a bar, you know, over a couple of beers. What you and Sam do is just, it is madness. It's nonsense. It's craziness. Endless <laughs> slack threads that uh-huh. never stop. That, and phone calls and phone calls and oh Zooms. Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. I don't have the stamina. I, I, I just don't have it, as I told the advisory board. But yeah, this is what I like. I like just having the fun, the fun part. That's all I'm here for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just swoop in at the end. And give your reactions. It is the ninth annual Film Spotting Madness Tournament. Best of the 1960s is what's on tap for this year. 64 films enter, only one survives. And if you're asking what's next, the 1950s? Maybe. We don't know yet. But we are ready to see what will emerge as the best film of this decade. Before we reveal those 64 titles, we do have a play-in round. That's where we're at this week. 16 play-in matchups, 
organized by genre, actor, theme, or director, though now I really am wishing we'd paired Andre Rublev against The Jungle Book. Yeah. That would have been a see? fun plan. <laughs> see, you should be part of those Wrap conversations, your mind Josh. that one. Uh-huh. The winner of these plans will move on to round one next week. Before we talk through some of the matchups in the play-ins, a very quick explanation of how this all works. Polls open every Monday afternoon Central Time. They close the following Monday at 11 a.m. Central Time. One week per round. So as you are hearing this right now, play-in polls are open and they'll close on Monday the 27th at 11 a.m. That same afternoon, that's when you will see the bracket unveiled, will go live, and you'll see the 64 films that are in the tournament. You'll see all the matchups, and you can also enter our prediction contest, which we've been doing the past few years. That starts on the 27th. And Josh, this year, Sam and I, we think, had a pretty inspired idea. We mentioned the advisory board earlier. We've got our beloved film spotting family members. So prediction contest one, just like we've been doing it, open to everybody. The winner of that tournament 700 to 1,000 people enter. Let's see if we can top that this year. If you win, you get a film spotting prize pack and you get the chance to play along with us next year in our little fun internal contest. Yes. You get to compete against me, Josh, Sam, and the godfather of film spotting madness listener, Mike Merrigan. But we're going to do a second prediction contest that is just open to our film spotting family members and Sometimes we struggle to come up with compelling bonus content shows. We do monthly bonus shows for some of our film spotting family members. Well, guess what? If you win film spotting madness, you get to determine the bonus content and you have to come on and talk about that topic with us. <laughs> I like how you phrase that. I think you said you have to come on. You now have that, to. That That's makes what I said. Sound like a threat. Yep. So, so let me ask you, if someone wins and, uh -huh. and doesn't necessarily want to go on mic, can they just come on and like watch and chime in here and there as they feel, or, or do they have to like actually come on and, you know, bring all the astute observations that we do every time yeah, we do I a mean, bonus if, show? If, if they don't bring any astute observations, then we will harangue them with insults. Great. I will, I will force them to speak, Josh. That's the plan. Okay. Just, just wanted to make sure. <laughs> to join the film spotting family for as little as $4.99 a month. You could do that at filmspottingfamily.com. I know we're throwing a lot of information at you. Here's really what you need to know. Information about both prediction contests will go out next week. Family members will get it via their weekly newsletter. Everyone else will get it on our website, on social media. And of course, we'll talk about it on our next episode. To vote and get more info, filmspotting.net. There's going to be a link right there on the main page, or you can go to filmspottingmadness.com. That's filmspottingmadness.com. Yes, we love it so much, we gave it its own domain. You know it's at the big time then. That's right. Let me ask you one quick question. Do we have our winner? I, I'm sorry, I apologize to the winner from last year who is going to be joining us. A very good question, and I too, regrettably, do not remember who that winner was, but Sam, our producer who never misses anything, Remembered this earlier this week. I don't know if he is actually emailed yet or not, but intends to reach out very soon to that winner. Hopefully okay. he or she is in. Sounds good. Okay, let's get to these play-in matchups. There are 16 of them, as we mentioned. We're not going to list all of the play-ins. You can vote now, as we mentioned, filmspotting.net or go to filmspottingmadness.com. 
I broke these up, Josh, in two categories. I've got a top five that were pretty easy. I've got a top five that were pretty hard. Where do you stand? Which ones do you want to start with? Yeah, I did take a a peek at this today at the play-ins. And so I do have one or two in each category. How about you go? I'll follow Mm -hmm. your lead, and I imagine we'll probably have different ones, but if we have some that share, I'll just piggyback. Uh, And I also have a confession to make. I I haven't Mm. seen every title that is in the play-in round. There's a lot of titles in this round, but uh, there's one I'm I'm particularly ashamed about. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do less Oscars homework in the next week to watch this particular film because I feel it's more, more deserving. And I won't feel as shameful as the tournament proceeds. So, yeah, but you go ahead. Tell me what your where do you want to okay. start? Your easiest? Yeah. I can't wait to hear what title that is, though, because I might be able to give you some time back this weekend and let you know that there's no way that movie is going to advance to the tournament and there's no reason for you to watch it. We'll, well see. that would be good to know, but I think I'm going to watch this anyway. It's that okay. egregious that I, okay. just, I just need any reason to watch it. The easiest ones for me in our plans. We do have a Disney matchup, The Jungle Book versus 101 Dalmatians. I have to confess, I haven't seen 101 Dalmatians since I was a child. And I've seen The Jungle Book a lot more recently because I had kids when they were younger who really adored that film. Not really fair, but I'm saying it's an easy one. I'm going Jungle Book. Stop you right there. This is a hard one for me. Really? Okay. And it's reversed. I've seen 101 Dalmatians more recently than The Jungle Book. So maybe if I watched them back to back, it'd be easier. But it's hard, really, because these aren't two of my most beloved Disney animated films. I don't know. There are probably some people who feel that strongly about these two. I do like them both. But I feel like Jungle Book has the music, which makes me lean that way. But having recently watched 101 Dalmatians, I just like the animation style there a little bit better. So I'm probably going to go with Dalmatians in this one, but it's not an easy choice. Glad it was easy for you. We also have what we're calling a famous hell matchup. These are films from the 60s, obviously, that are about real pop stars who are on the road or living that pop star life and their various struggles with it. Don't look back. The D.A. Pennebaker doc about Bob Dylan, A Hard Day's Night, Richard Lester's film about the Beatles. An easy one for me because of my love for the Pennebaker documentary. Go and don't look back. Makes sense. Would have guessed guessed you'd go that way. I've got more leading man Paul. This is a Paul Newman matchup. HUD versus The Hustler. HUD, a film I needed to watch in preparation for this, and we're going to talk about it in some bonus content. I'm a fan of The Hustler, but wow is HUD a better film and a great film. It's a clear pick for me here. So here's my confession. You know I've seen HUD. We're yeah. going to do a bonus episode about it, pairing it with The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Have never seen Newman in The Hustler and have always been embarrassed about that. Now, are you hmm. are you telling me, is this just your personal opinion and you feel like HUD should move on? Because my perception is that Hustler is the better known film. Irregardless of you know the quality, where they stand, how they're rated in various places, but I just feel like Hustler is the one people know more, and I was kind of assuming that would move on. You think that's not the case? I thought HUD had a chance because I thought it was the more 
reputable or the more beloved film, even though you're right that The Hustler is definitely the more well-known film. So I thought HUD had a chance. Sam was right about this one, thought that The Hustler would probably run away with it. Now, I don't know if it's running away with it, but it is winning. So back when you said you had a title that was an embarrassing blind spot for you, I was just suggesting, who knows, maybe it's one that is going to go out in the playing round. Right. I don't think The Hustler, I don't think The Hustler is that movie. I think it's going to advance. Yeah, that was my guess too. So I will be watching it and hopefully can cheer it on. We have a fame as hell matchup and we have a marriage as hell matchup. John Cassavetti's Faces versus Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from Mike Nichols. I, of course, love Faces. I love Cassavetti's, the first film and our Cassavetti's marathon a few years ago, but a pretty easy pick actually for me to go with Virginia Woolf. Really? That's, yep. That surprises me. And I'm going to go the other way. This was one of my hardest, actually, because although I could watch Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton rage at each other for hours, I do like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf faces my favorite picture in our Cassavetti's marathon. So I've, I'm going to go that way in this tough vote. Don't look back. The only other film besides the two I'm about to mention that is a documentary in the best of the 60s. So we had to get at least one more into the tourney. Verite viewing. This should be a hard one, actually, but I love the Maisel's salesman so much that it wasn't that tough to pick it ahead of Frederick Wiseman's high school. Both hugely influential Verite docs, both influential on me, and I'm certainly a fan of both the Maisel's and Wiseman, but Salesman for me, I think is maybe even my favorite Maisel's doc. So that brings us to the harder ones. And look, the three films I'm about to mention here, I don't hold any of the three in as high a regard as most of the films I just mentioned. But that's kind of the struggle. <laughs> then I kind of view them all about the same. It's the Audrey Hepburn trio we have here. Breakfast at Tiffany's versus Charade versus Wait Until Dark. I was mixed on Charade when we watched that during our Stanley Donnan marathon. Wait Until Dark was a film I quite enjoyed back when I think it was a listener's choice pick. We did it on After Hours with your predecessor over a decade ago, well over a decade ago. And I understand how problematic Breakfast at Tiffany's is or one particular element of that film is. But when I think about, and I don't think this is the title that's going to win, we'll see. But when I think about Audrey Hepburn, yeah, I'm thinking about Breakfast at Tiffany's. I'm thinking about how iconic that role is. And even though I do really like Wait Until Dark, and it might even be a better made film, I'm going with Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, I'd go that way too, although it sounds like I, I probably like Charade a little bit better than you. But Breakfast at Tiffany's with, which yeah, does have a significant you know, problem there with Mickey Rooney. It also has a sadness in its story and in Hepburn's performance that I think is forgotten about when people think about the style and the fashion and the look of the film, which is all great as well. That's why we revisited it as a family recently. Uh, my high school daughter was doing a, a, pro a school project on iconic Hollywood dresses. And so she wanted to watch Breakfast at Tiffany's. And I was surprised at all the other stuff going on in that film. So I think I'm with you. I'd go that way too. We also have a World War II ensembles matchup, The Dirty Dozen versus The Great Escape. Haven't seen these movies in a while. And I don't really have much recollection of either film other than liking them. Fortunately, a few comments, or at least in one of the film's cases, there's a few comments. And I have a star rating on Letterboxd to reference. And I gave The Great Escape 
three and a half stars. I gave the Dirty Dozen four and a half stars. So I guess I'm going with the Dirty Dozen in this matchup, Josh. There you go. Sometimes, you know, usually I I scoff at quibbles about star ratings, but I have found in something like Madness, Mm -hmm. that can be helpful. That can just push you in the right direction. Both films, very good though. How about this one? The Catherine Deneuve play-in. Belle de Jour, Bunuel, versus Polanski's Repulsion, versus the young girls of Rochefort. And here for me, it's really about Rochefort versus Belle de Jour. And I feel like I'm going with the maybe more obvious choice, but I am going Belle de Jour, Josh. Yeah, I think you have to. It sounds sacrilegious to vote against a Jacques Demy musical, but Belle du Jour, we did that as part of our marathon, our Luis Bunuel marathon. I believe that's when we talked about it, right? And yeah, I think it's probably at the end of the day, the richer, definitely the more provocative, the more thought-provoking film. So that would get my vote. If you're feeling bad for Demi, he does have the umbrellas of Cherbourg already in the tournament. It's yeah. got a spot and I mean, locked that up. That one, you know, in my personal bracket would go pretty far to the top. Yeah, we could actually end up, and I'm sure we'll get some grief for this if it plays out, but I don't think it will play out. We could end up, technically speaking, with zero Luis Bunuel films in the tournament because both The Exterminating Angel and Belle du Jour are in the play-in tournament. But I think we're more likely, and I haven't looked at any of the voting yet, but I think we're more likely to see both of them get in. We shall see how it plays out. Bergman. Bergman already in the tournament, high seed with Persona, but then you've got at least these four other films to reckon with, The Silence, Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Virgin Spring. And for me, it really comes down to the fact that The Virgin Spring is a film I remember watching Max von Sydow very early into my cinephile education, very early into discovering Ingmar Bergman, but that was a long time ago, Josh, and I have thought a lot more seriously about Winter Light over the past 10 years, not only because of it being a huge influence on the very good Paul Schrader film first reformed a few years ago, but also I taught that spiritual crises in cinema class where we gave a lot of attention to Winter Light. So I'm giving it the slight edge over Virgin Spring. And I'll throw in one last hard one, but it's a little bit of a cheat because there is one title of the three I haven't seen. It's our Angry Young Men matchup. Lindsay Anderson's If, explosive If, with Malcolm McDowell versus The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, my favorite movie from our Kitchen Sink or our Angry Young Men marathon many years ago here on the show, and Ken Loach's breakout film. I believe it was his first film or the one that really put him on the map, Kess. That's the one I haven't seen, but really hard, really hard to choose between If and The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, but The Long Distance Runner was the film that... I gave my best picture as part of that marathon. So getting my vote here, Josh, though I haven't officially voted yet. Come on. There are rules. This isn't nom. I haven't voted yet because I'd like to fit in Kess before I have to. Yeah, that's usually how I do it. I won't vote in, especially the ones that have multiple titles. It's maybe more tempting to say, well, I've seen two out of the three of these, but I usually hold back unless I've seen all the titles going up against each other. Can I give you one more easiest one for me just to... You know, kind of needle the Dr. Zhivago fans, which is a movie that I do like, but when it's up against Spartacus. (laughs) Oh, this was a last minute choice. Sam added this. Yeah. Zhivago is in. 
and then we threw in Spartacus. And I think Zhivago will take it. I mean, I, I, I don't think that Spartacus is going to have an upset here and make it into the tournament. But for me, it's the better film. Having watched it just recently, you know, the conniving supporting players, you think of Kubrick epic, the images, but what I enjoyed so much about it were just the supporting cast having so much fun in Spartacus and, you know, Kirk Douglas, so great in the lead, not wild about Omar Sharif and Dr. Shivago. I got. It's, I, I thought we both gave that a positive review. We gave it a positive it. review, but it was we weren't glowing enough. I remember getting a fair amount of crap for that, and for me, Sharif in particular, you know that, that I can picture it now. That that teary stare he has, you know, for for about all eight hours of that movie. I I just you, you can't. No, come on, you can't. You're not going to criticize. This is a Omar Sharif criticism free zone. I'm sorry. Hey. Omar Sharif, Lawrence of Arabia, love him. Fantastic. Nothing against the guy personally. Just what's going on in Chivago. I, I, I didn't get all the love that that movie has. And, you know, is probably the reason why it will make the tournament. Well, I haven't seen Spartacus. I've still never seen that Stanley Kubrick film. And despite my love for Kubrick and Kirk Douglas, I've never felt bad about it. And when Sam said, hey, it's got its fans. Let's go ahead and throw it in. It'll be part of the play-ins. It'll never beat Chivago. So I didn't vote, but I thought it doesn't matter if we throw this in. I don't have to worry about the blind spot. It's not going to advance. And I'm just here to tell you that if you're out there listening right now and you haven't voted yet and you're like, Dr. Chivago has to be in the top 64, then you better recruit some friends Seriously? to start voting. Because there's an uprising. <laughs> there's what? an uprising in this play-in right now. What is happening? There is an uprising. Spartacus. <laughs> it's it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem. And I may have to watch three hours of a Stanley Kubrick film or however long it is. I think you it's can vote. shorter than, no, it's probably not shorter than Chivago, yeah. actually. <laughs> you can vote in all 16 of those play-in matchups now. Filmspotting.net or filmspottingmadness.com. Next week. Round one, the tournament officially begins. We'll give you the bracket and you can enter the bracket prediction contest. All right. We'll give Lonigan the hook on the train and play him here. JJ, you think I can get in that poker game? All you got to do is show up with a lot of money and look like a sucker. I also got to win. Oh, by the way, have you guys been passing bad money lately? We get back into our top five of 1973 with Paul Newman and Ray Walston in the best picture winning The Sting directed by George Roy Hill, winner of the Best Director Prize, reuniting Hill with Newman and Robert Redford four years after Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That does have a spot in Film Spotting Madness Best of the 60s. This was another title that you caught up with for the top five, Josh. I think last week I was on record on the show in saying, The Sting is very fine. What did you make of it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we were, we were discussing this a little bit on Slack with Sam today, and we're all... In agreement with you, mm -hmm. I would say. I know Sam said it's been a while since he'd seen it, but you know, we we all appreciate the movie. I think I the word that came to mind for me, you know, about an hour in is this is just such a pleasure. You know, mm -hmm. so much fun stuff going on, including those performances, of course. And I could see why in 73, with where those two stars were in their career and George Roy Hill as the director, why it would get that best picture nom and even win. But in the context of some of the other stuff I saw, yeah, not not going to make my top 10, but I think the three of us are, we found out, right? Maybe underappreciating it according mm. to a fair amount of listeners. 
Yeah, it was a popular write-in vote in our recent film spotting poll. We asked you to choose the best film of 1973 and other than other. We only gave you three options. We gave you Terrence Malick's Badlands. We gave you William Friedkin's The Exorcist, my number two film of 73. And we gave you Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, my number three film of 1973. Josh, how did it come out? So Altman is in last place here with 21% of the vote. Badlands got 23% of the vote. Other, it's rare that we see other this high, but second place, 26% of the vote. And yeah, The Exorcist, most voters love it as much as you do, Adam, 29% of the vote for the win. It is rare that we see other with that high of a percentage, but it's also kind of rare that we have so few options in a poll. And 1973 being as good of a year as we've said it is, it makes sense that other would perform well. And here is one of those sting lovers. Josh Tom Schutzer says, this is another film spotting trademark, deeply flawed poll. How can you leave out The Sting, a film that not only took home Best Picture at the Academy Awards, but also carries a higher letterbox average than two of your three non-write-in options. Redford and Newman have such great chemistry. The supporting cast is fantastic, and the heist plot is pulled off with such aplomb. It stands to this day as one of the defining examples of, actually, the Oscars got it right. Jamie Van Struth wrote in as well, Ugh, the newsletter email header, happy 50th, 1973, hit me like a dagger because I was born in 1973 and yep, I got a big birthday coming up later this year. I voted for the long goodbye narrowly over mean streets, best performance by a cat in a motion picture and a deliciously rambling caper with the ultimate delicious rambler, Elliot Gold, plus Schwarzenegger in a non-speaking role. Jamie is correct and happy early birthday, Jamie. Oni says, Badlands, Exorcist, and The Long Goodbye are all fine films, but a pretty meager selection of what 73 had to offer. Meager. Okay. It's Serpico by a long shot for me. One of the finest by one of the most underappreciated directors of his era, Sidney Lumet. He is definitely right, Oni is, about Sidney Lumet being one of the most underappreciated directors of his era, or maybe not. I kind of feel like Lumet's one of those guys who's probably properly rated and appropriately beloved. Another vote for other here from Samuel Thurston going with other to make sure that Bruce Lee's enter the dragon gets some recognition and really what's not to love. It's essentially a sixties bond film, Goldfinger, especially reimagined with Hong Kong martial arts and early seventies black exploitation interwoven seamlessly. Lee is unmatched in his on-camera athletic prowess in what would become his most iconic role, at least amongst Western audiences. It might not be a perfect movie, but it's impossible to deny it as a cornerstone of cinema that helped bridge a gap between East and West, as well as influencing countless action films to this day. I'm sort of with Samuel Adam, don't have Enter the Dragon this high, but it is it is in my top 10 for the year. I think if you're looking mm. at this era particularly and, you know, want to mark Lee's impact on the movies, this is the one to go with, Enter the Dragon. Yeah, more top 20 for me, a blind spot I finally rectified last year with Film Spotting Madness, wanted to make sure I saw it before Best of the 70s, and Samuel's definitely right about the 60s 
Bond film element to Enter the Dragon. Finally, Andrew W. says, I went with other and put Sam Peckinpah's greatest cinematic achievement, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, as my best film of 73. The movie is a lament from a one-time cinematic maverick that has been supplanted by new voices in the medium. The one-time renegade is now the creaky old conservative, haunted by his past and shackled by his future. It is also a lament for the medium itself. The movies used to have the ability to question the status quo, shock people out of their seats, and enact real change in society. Peckinpah sees movies like Jaws on the Horizon. He sees the bastard art form giving way to populists and corporate overlords. It's like Bob Dylan sings in his immaculate soundtrack, Billy, they don't like you to be so free. I am a fan of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. It might just come up here at some point as we get through our list. Thank you to everyone who voted and everyone who shared comments about their favorite films of 1973 as we were forming this list. It definitely gave us a lot to chew on. Josh, and we are ending with two films here that we each have in our number one slots. So actually, these are your two and one. And for me, it's my number four and number one. Let's go ahead and start with the film you have as your number one. I've got Mean Streets at number one. This is, you know, it's not Martin Scorsese's first feature, but it's a career-defining one in a lot of ways. It's his first foray into the gangster genre, which would be his primary canvas. It's his first use of future muse Robert De Niro, who's just mesmerizing as this loose cannon, low-level hood. And it's a testing ground for the tough guy patter and those stylistic flashes that would cohere so brilliantly in his later films. But honestly, they're pretty fully formed here in Mean Streets. Hmm. It's also, you know, it's spiritually haunted, like so many of Scorsese's best films. And that's probably why it did come out for me here at the top at number one. You have Harvey Keitel playing Charlie, this religiously minded loan shark who has what I would call a misguided savior complex. He he thinks his penance for his sins is to save De Niro's Johnny Boy, but Charlie needs to be saved just as much. And we sense this. He even gives hints at this by what isn't said in Charlie's prayers, which we hear in voiceover. You can you can sense the self-deception if you listen between the lines. Okay, I just come out of confession, right? Right. And the priest gives me the usual penance, right? Ten Hail Marys, ten Our Fathers, ten whatever. Now, you know that next week I'm going to come back and he's going to just give me another ten Hail Marys and another ten Our Fathers. And I mean, you know how I feel about that. Those things, they don't mean anything to me. They're just words. Now, that may be okay for the others, but it just doesn't work for me. I mean, if I do something wrong, I just want to pay for it my way. So I do my own penance for my own sins. What do you say, huh? Johnny Boy, meanwhile, he's doomed because he can't follow the strict rules of the mob life. This is one of the ironies of the mob life, right? It's supposedly free of the law, but there are more rules within it than you would have outside. Johnny Boy can't pay his debts. He can't give the respect that is due. He's just incapable of that. And so he's he's sort of like this fallen angel who gets kicked out of hell. All of this theology is visually emphasized by the throbbing red lights, that lighting scheme we see at the bar where they hang out so much. It's, it's crucial that one of Charlie's voiceover prayers, it actually begins with him in church, but then it ends with that famous tracking shot, one of them that's running along that bar with those devilish lights. So yeah, for me, 
It's Mean Streets at the top of my list. I, I think it's the best film of 73. Yeah, I have it all the way down at number four. Again, how good this year was. I guess we didn't have enough guilt and sin talk when I referenced The Exorcist earlier. But you think about this film, and I think you really touched on the hallmarks of this movie or what we really still remember as what makes it so great. But you have Scorsese here, like you said, with his second film, his breakout film, taking all these influences, and they're all on display, French New Wave, Italian neorealism, cinema verite, but mixing in this rock and roll sensibility and this actual rock and roll unconventional soundtrack. And he's mixing in also his own upbringing and his experiences. And he's making something uniquely cinematic and uniquely personal. Now, this may counter a little bit what you said in terms of it being fully formed. And I want to be clear that we're talking about a matter of degrees here anyway with a great filmmaker and a great film. But I read what Roger Ebert had to say about this movie when he reviewed it 25 years or more after it came out. And he gave it four stars, loved the film. But later in the review, he says, seen after 25 years, Mean Streets is a little creaky at times. This is an early film by a director who was still learning and who learned so fast that by 1976, he would be ready to make Taxi Driver, one of the greatest films of all time, also with De Niro and Keitel. The movie doesn't have the headlong flow, the unspoken confidence in every choice that become a Scorsese hallmark. It was made on a tiny budget with actors still finding their way, and most of it wasn't even shot on the mean streets of the title, but in disguised L.A. locations. But it has an elemental power, a sense of spiraling doom that a more polished film might have lacked. I think Ebert's accurate. I think that's fair to say about this film, that it doesn't have the polish or all of the confidence that we're going to see in movies like Taxi Driver and other films that Scorsese is going to go on to make. But that sense of spiraling doom is a great way to put it. It's a movie bursting with energy. And of course, what I'm about to say is kind of silly because, of course, it makes sense to suggest to anyone who wants to study film or study filmmaking that it'd be a good idea to watch a Martin Scorsese movie or to watch Mean Streets. But I was thinking recently about this film in relation to my daughter, Sophie, who's taking a film class at college. And even though it's more of a film studies class, the professor also has a background in production and is augmenting the syllabus or adding into the syllabus these little assignments where the students do have to film and edit their own stuff. And as far as I know, is just having them do it with their phones. So there might be an assignment like develop a sense of space or place through just extreme close-ups. That was one assignment. Now they're going to move on to an assignment that's just about using a long take, a single shot. And it did occur to me that maybe that lack of polish that Ebert is talking about makes Mean Streets particularly potent and instructive to someone like Sophie or anyone who is making these student projects like this, because where to place the camera, how to move the camera, how to use color, how to use music. It's all there, but it also feels in some way, maybe as misguided as this is almost attainable. Like it's a gritty enough film and it is just unpolished enough that you think, Oh, Okay, well, if Scorsese could do this, I can try to mimic some of this stuff as well. I mean, maybe. 
<laughs> it's it's it would be a high bar to beat to be able to you know in a, in a yeah. first attempt to but it's do not some good of the fellas. stuff that's going it's not on good here. Fellas. But I think yeah, that's what I mean by yeah, not yeah. entirely fully formed. And I think Ebert's onto something too in that this movie, this story in particular. I think it's, you know, especially with Johnny Boy, who's different from someone like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, actually, because there's a chaotic element, whereas Pesci's character was unpredictable and Johnny Boy is more an an agent of chaos in this film. And in some way, even though the filmmaking is not as fully formed as later pictures would be, it works well to have that character in a slightly chaotic is too strong of a word but a, a slightly um less polished feature you know something mikey you make me laugh you know that you know i borrow money all over this neighborhood left and right from everybody and i never paid them back so i can't borrow no money from nobody no more right so who does that leave me to borrow money from but you i borrow money from you because you're the only jerk off around here that i can borrow money from without paying back right Right? Because you know that's what you are. That's what I think of you. A jerk off. <laughs> you're smiling like he's a jerk off. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying about Pesci and comparing him to the Johnny Boy character. I do think that you could argue that Pesci's Tommy is actually kind of predictable because he's exactly who he is. You know his nature. At some point, you can predict how he's going to react he's gonna blow, to yeah. things because that's that's who he is and he can only be who he is. And you're right. You really do get the feeling with De Niro and Johnny Boy that you have no sense of how he will behave, respond, or what he might provoke in someone else or what might be provoked in him moment to moment. And that's what makes him such a fascinating character and a fascinating performance by De Niro. So we've heard... Your number one, my number four. We close out the top five with a movie that is my number one of 1973, and it's Badlands. Terrence Malick, you referenced it earlier. I didn't know quite where you were going. I knew when you said there were three filmmakers who had these breakout films that were really announcing themselves on the world cinema stage. I knew you were thinking of Scorsese and Malick, and I had just overlooked that Lucas probably fit that bill as well. So go down the rabbit hole a little bit with me here, Josh, when it comes to this film and what we were just talking about, because I don't think I need to give a lot of people all the background on Badlands or all the reasons why I love it. We've devoted a lot of time to Malik, multiple top fives, images, favorite scenes. Badlands has been talked about a lot. Badlands was talked about as was Mean Streets during a new Hollywood marathon before you joined the show. But putting these two movies back to back here in terms of our conversation and me putting Badlands higher, putting it ahead of Mean Streets as I did, it just got me thinking a little bit about Ebert's quote and the fact that, of course, these are both 1973 films. They're the breakout movies that launched the careers of two of the best and most acclaimed American filmmakers, certainly, but two of the best filmmakers, period. And from what I could tell in doing some Googling today, they were made for roughly the same amount of money. Both of them I saw 300K to 500K was kind of the estimate. And when I was looking up that information, I came across a website. I think it's beyondcinephilia.org. And they had an article about Badlands. And in the first paragraph, they mentioned this. When the film premiered at the New York Film Festival, everything was suddenly 
worth it. All the effort, all the money, all the things Malik had to go through in order to get the film made. Some say it even overshadowed Scorsese's Mean Streets. So these films debuted together at the New York Film Festival. And I called it the breakout, but, you know, it really was Scorsese's second film. And if you accept at all what Ebert is saying, even as he's really praising the film Mean Streets, that, you know, it's a little creaky. How do you reconcile the fact or what what do we make of the fact? Again, this is all just in the spirit of these both being great films. What do you make about the fact that Malick seems to show up with Badlands as a filmmaker who truly does to me seem fully formed? Now, this is subjective, of course. You might agree with me that Badlands is more polished, but still think Mean Streets is a more interesting or better film. You might also think that Mean Streets is just a grittier film. It's clearly an urban set neighborhood film. And Badlands is a road trip movie set against the backdrop of the American Midwest. And it's it's more languid, though still exciting in its own ways. We don't need to determine which one is better. That's that's not the point. And I'm certainly not looking to be critical of Scorsese. I'm really just trying to praise Malik here that Scorsese is such an incredible talent and Mean Streets is so good. And yet here with his first film, it feels to me like Malik truly dropped a masterpiece right out of the gate. The beauty and the vigor of the cinematography, the clarity of voice, what he's trying to express, what he's wrestling with that that would not only form the basis of a lot of what we would see in his future films, but even on its own to me here in this film feels as if he has an incredibly wise perspective on it. What the film says about America reflecting this existential malaise, this drive for individualism, fame, even all these things that it's contending with. And you could even kind of connect, you know, Scorsese has a voiceover in mean streets and Sissy SpaceX has one that's more prevalent in badlands There's religious overtones to both of those characters. She's rejecting her strict upbringing. They're both characters who are becoming participants in these worlds of sin. I don't know if you want to see Kaitel's character as some kind of Adam or not, but certainly SpaceX is Eve. We've talked about it on the show. Her Eve moment happens after they go to their nature getaway, their Garden of Eden, and she become self-aware. She gains self-knowledge and everything changes about her relationship to Kit, played so wonderfully by Martin Sheen, and her relationship to the world after that. So it was just a fun sort of thought experiment for me, thinking about these two films and connecting them and really being in awe, even more in awe of how wonderful Badlands is right from the very beginning of Malick's career. Great film. Got it at number two. Yeah, I, I haven't, you know, I didn't expect this to turn into a Badlands versus Mean Streets conversation. So thinking about why maybe I slotted Mean Streets ahead of it within this context, I guess for me, and again, what I don't like about this this setup is it, it requires kind of downgrading one of the great films. But for me, Badlands is in a sense not as fully formed as a Malick picture because it's very much a genre exercise. Um, there's two interesting ways of looking at at Badlands, right? Is like, as you said, this is Malick. Like, he's all here. Everything he's been interested in, how he shoots things, it's here, which is true. But compared to all his other pictures, I mean, he's sort of done war pictures, but they don't look like or move like or talk like any other war pictures. He's sort of done historical dramas, same thing. Whereas here, 
this is a true crime picture. You know, it's based on the Charles Starkweather, Carol Ann Fugat mm-hmm. killing spree. It's a Bonnie and Clyde variation. It's a lovers on the lamb story. That's not all, you know, to discredit it. But I think as I was thinking about these two, for me, Mean Streets is almost more of a Scorsese picture of who he would become. And Badlands is more of a genre exercise that gives amazing hints of where Malik would go. But I mm-hmm. agree with all the stuff you said in terms of, you know, how do we know this is a Malik picture? Yeah. And, and you're right. This is a lot of the stuff we did talk about. I mean, that voiceover technique, the choice to not only use voiceover in a genre film, but the type of voiceover it is with Sissy SpaceX Holly, just it's that it's sort of naive, but somehow at the same time, capturing hints of great wisdom. I mean, it's really something unique and he'll do more of that in his career, obviously, as he goes on. One day while taking a look at some vistas in Dad's Stereopticon, it hit me that I was just this little girl born in Texas whose father was a sign painter who had only just so many years to live. It sent a chill down my spine and I thought, where would I be this very moment if Kid had never met me or killed anybody this very moment? And yeah, all the stuff, you know, you're talking about Adam and Eve, Paradise Lost, all his movies have a Paradise Lost, right? And this is what we get here. Right at the beginning, that sequence you mentioned, we've talked about so many times on the show when they hide out in the forest. It's one of his many screen Edens. So yeah, those fingerprints are all over this thing for sure. And you know what always surprises me when I go back and look at Badlands and uh, think about or listen to some scenes and watch some scenes because this is something that I don't think comes to mind first, at least for me. But that toy-like score by George Tipton, mm. it just gives everything a lightness and an innocence. We're back to what you were talking about. That belies the twisted nature of this central relationship and the cruelty of their killings. Because this is some really nasty stuff that happens in this movie, yet there's the, also this ethereal air going on at the same time. And and I think Tipton's score has a lot to do with that. Yeah, I think you make some great points and I don't dispute the genre elements at play in Badlands. And yet I see those Malick signature elements as being so strong in this film that they completely consume the genre elements to the point where I don't think of Badlands as one of those genre films. I don't think of it as as an exercise because I see it as this jumping off point for all of these Malick preoccupations and signature touches and concerns. But you're right, both great films and they're right at the top of your list and they are both among my top five. Those are our top five films of 1973, 50 years ago, gave us some great cinema and I know there are some titles we would like to Make sure get included in the conversation. Josh, what do you have? Yeah, probably number six for me would be Fantastic Planet. This was a homework watch that uh, I almost squeezed onto my top five. It's Rene Leloux's animated feature in which these giant blue advanced aliens keep humans as pets. The only way I can describe it briefly is Equal Parts, Dr. Seuss, Yellow Submarine, and Fritz the Cat. This, this is some crazy stuff, and I kind of loved it. Black Caesar also would be on my top 10 from the year. This is one of the standouts from our Black Exploitation Marathon. 
that we did, Adam, with uh, Fred Williamson sort of updating the Edward G. Robinson slash James Cagney persona here. I definitely wanted to give black exploitation some consideration if we're talking 1973. And I think I mentioned on our previous episode, it came up that I did watch the spook who sat by the door, which was another wild one for this list. Definitely would recommend that to folks. Amarcord for me, yep, I would consider it this year and it would make my top 10. Um, and then the long goodbye would be on there too, which made your top five. Some good titles I didn't hear mentioned there, Josh. And I've got a few that I'm going to throw out. I've divided them into three different categories, movies that I think are properly rated, movies that are underrated, and then a couple that are maybe overrated, even as I'm saying they are among the best films of 1973. The properly rated films, and these four for me were really tough to not include. Like I could easily change my top five, move day for night out and put in one of these films. The Last Detail, Hal Ashby, Eastwood's High Plains Drifter, the aforementioned F for Fake from Orson Welles and Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon. Slightly next tier down, but close. Lucas's American Graffiti making your list. Nicholas Rogues, Don't Look Now. Those are all the films I think are properly rated. Three underrated films from 1973. Soylent Green, really good sci-fi film. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid came up in our poll feedback. And yeah, I love Jesus Christ Superstar. I love Norman Jewison's version of the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. I think maybe a little underrated. So what are my two overrated films? Well, they've both been mentioned. They both came up in our poll. I think they're fine. And I think they deserve to be included here in the top 15 or 20 films of 1973. But I just maybe don't quite love them as much as many people do. Sting and Serpico. I think Lamette made so many better films. Than Serpico. Well, I'm glad I saw the sting, as I said, but I'm kind of with you there. For for whatever reason, I was looking on Letterboxd after after logging it, and the sting has like a good number of five out of five star ratings, and below that, mostly four and a half. So I get it. As we said, it's a ton of fun, an absolute pleasure. But yeah, for me, not quite in that rarefied air for 1973. Once again, our top five films of 73. If you would like to write in and take issue with any of those picks, and I'm guessing we'll get some feedback, you can do so by emailing feedback at filmspotting.net. You could also send us an audio file. We just might play it on the show. That's our show, Josh. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Adam is at filmspotting, and I'm at Larson on film. At filmspotting.net, it is time to take part in Film Spotting Madness 2023, Best of the 1960s. Yes, voting is open now for the play-in round of our annual bracket-style tourney. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free, plus a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. We are about to drop our February bonus episode, A 60s Blind Cow, two Westerns. You've seen one of them. I've seen the other. We're going to talk through The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and HUD should be fun. From the archive, which... Film Spotting family members have access to as part of one of their membership tiers or a few different membership tiers, actually. You could go all the way back to episode 465. That was Halloween 23 when Josh shocked me 
by revealing that he didn't really like The Exorcist. We also had a really good top five, our top five terrifying characters. And then that new Hollywood marathon episodes 260, 261, and 262. We talked about The Long Goodbye, Mean Streets, and Badlands. And finally, if you would like to hear our top five list for every year from 1981 to the present, plus a few more like 1967 and 1979, all there in the show archive. That's filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, you can see the acclaimed 2022 film from Moroccan director Mariam Tuzani, The Blue Caftan. Emily, the directing debut of actress Frances O'Connor, also out in limited release. An Imagined Life of Emily Bronte with Emma Mackey and Finn Whitehead. The Quiet Girl, an Oscar nominee for Best International Film, is out. Long-kept secrets are revealed when a young girl is sent to live with her relatives for the summer. Our friend Mariah Gates gave it four and a half stars on Letterboxd. Return to Soul, also out. This is another acclaimed 2022 film making its way to theaters. Robert Daniels gave it four and a half stars on Letterboxd and called it a blitzkrieg of raw emotions. And I'm guessing, Josh, that Robert is just going to take those five words. He's going to copy and paste it into his Letterboxd review of Cocaine Bear. (laughs) One can only assume. Which is also coming out this week in wide release. Next week here on Film Spotting. We'll be looking ahead to the Oscars. The great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune will join us. Our picks for who will win, but more importantly, who should win and who should have been nominated. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.